the DOMA litigation is actually not about the question of who has a right to get married. That's a very important question. It's not what the lawsuits are about. What the lawsuits are about is the question of whether when a state uh, gives or recognizes the right of a couple to get married, whether the federal government can selectively refuse to treat that marriage equally for federal law purposes and refuse to do so on a basis of a characteristic, the sex or the sexual orientation of the people involved in the relationship, which is a constitutionally suspect one. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi from a sunny but frigid uh, Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called The Law Sites and also another blog called Media Law. Craig, you write a blog or two, don't you? Uh, Just one, and barely at that. Uh, It's called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. And Bob, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law. And Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com, as well as LexisNexis, a leading provider of information and business solutions to professionals in a variety of industries at LexisNexis.com. Craig, in 1996, President Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA as it's referred to. Into law, DOMA gave states the right to refuse the recognition of same-sex marriages formed in other states. It also gave the federal government the same prerogative. Up until recently, the Obama administration defended the Defense of Marriage Act uh, in various lawsuits around the country uh, challenging it. But on February 23rd, 2011, Attorney General Eric Holder announced the Obama administration would no longer defend the constitutionality of the Defense of Marriage Act in cases pending in federal court. Attorney General Holder said that both he and President Obama had concluded that DOMA unconstitutionally discriminates against same-sex couples who are in marriages that are legally recognized by their state governments. However, Holder was careful to note that the executive branch would continue to enforce DOMA. President Obama's very important and very controversial decision is our topic today. So uh, let's bring in the guests who will help us discuss that. Uh, First of all, I'd like to introduce... uh, Tobias Barrington Wolf, uh, Professor Wolf is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He's a widely regarded scholar in the fields of civil procedure, complex litigation, and conflict of laws, and particularly in the field of constitutional law, where he is both a scholar and uh, a civil rights lawyer. He uh, served as chair of the National LGBT Advisory Committee for President Obama's 2008 campaign. He's a member of the American Law Institute, a founding board member of the Equal Justice Society, and a frequent public commentator on law and civil rights issues. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Wolf. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. And Bob, also joining us is Ken Klukowski. He's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council. Ken is a contributor to many media outlets, including Fox Forum at foxnews.com, 
biggovernment.com and townhall.com, and is a fellow and senior legal analyst with the American Civil Rights Union. Ken recently authored, co-authored The Blueprint, Obama's Plan to Subvert the Constitution and Build an Imperial Presidency with the FRC's Senior Fellow for Family Empowerment, Ken Blackwell. And we'd like to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ken Klukowski. Thank you for having me. Professor Wolf, let me let me start the program with you and uh, ask you, uh, there's a lot of confusion, I think, about exactly what uh, the Obama administration has done here. Uh, what's what's your take on it? What, what does the uh, announcement mean? What are they going to do or not going to do? Well, uh, one important distinction is one that you, you clarified in your introductory remarks. The administration has made it very clear that they will continue to apply and enforce the Defense of Marriage Act until and unless it is declared unconstitutional by a court of final review. What they are not any longer going to do is to defend its constitutionality in court challenges. And in that regard, they are both following uh, a, a practice that has been uh, infrequently invoked, but nonetheless uh, uh, invoked over the years, uh, when administrations have concluded that federal statutes or other federal programs cannot be defended or supported by reasonable constitutional arguments. And they're also uh, abiding by the terms of a statute that was enacted about 10 years ago, nine years ago, that recognizes that sometimes the executive will conclude that a statute cannot be defended by reasonable arguments. And, and when they do make that conclusion, they should notify the congressional leadership and give Congress the opportunity, if they want to, to become involved in the lawsuit and make their own arguments in defense of the statute. And in fact, the letter that you mentioned that Attorney General Holder issued the other week uh, to Speaker Boehner was in fact in pursuit, uh, in pursuant to those, those very statutory obligations. Well, Ken, what are your thoughts on this recent decision? Well, I think it's it's disappointing, and the reason it's disappointing is this: uh, it's correct that the it is a a little invoked uh, policy to, uh, to to decline to defend the constitutionality of an act of Congress. Uh, the issue is exploring and fleshing out exactly what that standard is. The standard is that DOJ uh, does not defend a statute if no reasonable argument can be formulated in favor of its constitutionality. So what we see here is a fundamental disconnect. The president says, I continue to believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, yet any law stating exactly that is irredeemably irrational, unreasonable, and unconstitutional. And I just think that's a classic non sequitur. Uh, the president should be clear as to which way he falls on this. If he believes that, uh, because I'm sure, of course, that he does not object to the reasonableness of marriage laws per se. So it's not that he's saying that marital laws are categorically unreasonable. If he believes that marriage is the union of a man and a woman, and he accepts that other marriage laws are reasonable, uh, then, then it is an impossible syllogism for him to conclude that, uh, that DOMA, which simply says that for the purposes of federal law, uh, marriage shall be recognized as the union of, of one man and one woman, uh, that somehow that would be uh, inherently unreasonable. Well, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I, 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 I think it's important to, to, uh, 
to say that that perhaps the administration is not being in, entirely clear about just what its stance is here. I, I, if I had read it right, I was reading that the, the, the case in, in San Francisco this week, uh, I, either the lawyers in the case or, or the court itself actually asked the uh, Justice Department for, for clarification on, on what its stance uh, would be at this point in these cases. Uh, yes, there has been recent docket activity in the uh, Perry v. Schwarzenegger case on uh, as a result of this letter. So, so to, Tobias, should should the Obama administration uh, come out more clearly uh, here in, in terms of providing guidance and policy? Well, let me offer a couple of responses to uh, Ken's observations. First of all, um, there is, of course, an important distinction both in in ordinary conversations and also in American law between one's personal or religious commitments and what the law, uh, what the obligations of the law are. And there are plenty of people in this country, for example, who believe that uh, individuals should not marry outside of their religion, and for whom the idea of uh, mixed religion marriages are, are wrong or even perhaps not a proper marriage. And those views are not given expression in our laws. And that's a kind of basic distinction between personal or religious commitments and equal treatment under the law. Now, part of what the administration explained in its letter to Speaker Boehner is, number one, uh, the DOMA litigation is actually not about the question of who has a right to get married. That's a very important question. It's not what the lawsuits are about. What the lawsuits are about is the question of whether when a state uh, gives or recognizes the right of a couple to get married, whether the federal government can selectively refuse to treat that marriage equally for federal law purposes and refuse to do so on a basis of a characteristic, the sex or the sexual orientation of the people involved in the relationship, which is a constitutionally suspect one. And part of what Attorney General Holder explained is that the recently filed lawsuits in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals were an occasion for the administration to have to make a judgment about whether anti-gay discrimination is constitutionally suspect. And they concluded, and I think quite correctly, that the answer is yes, and that the Defense of Marriage Act measured against that heightened constitutional scrutiny standard can't pass muster. And indeed, they had offered defenses of DOMA against a, a, a rationality standard, against a rational basis standard. But when a lawsuit came along that called upon them to figure out whether that was the correct standard, they concluded that the answer was no, and that under a heightened constitutional uh, scrutiny standard, the statute could not pass muster. And I think that is clearly a correct judgment. I don't know what reasonable arguments one could make for the proposition that when Connecticut or Iowa or Massachusetts or California extends the right to marry to same-sex couples, that the federal government has some compelling and necessary purpose in discriminating against those marriages. Well, here in California, we had a flap over Proposition 8, and uh, that's now, I believe, up in front of the Ninth Circuit for uh, a potential ruling. What effect does that have, and, and where are we winding this this uh, decision through the courts? Well, of course, the federal government is not involved in the Prop 8 litigation, but it is certainly the case that the, the statement by the executive that anti-gay discrimination is inherently suspect, it is presumptively unconstitutional, is a very important one. There's no question about that. I think it is a correct statement of constitutional law. And if the Ninth Circuit agrees with that proposition, then I think it may well have an impact on the Prop 8 litigation. And so it is, once again, the federal government's not involved in that lawsuit, but uh, they have taken a very important stand on a very important principle, and I think it may have an impact uh, quite broadly. 
Ken, Ken, how do you see that? Do you see the uh, decision, the administration's decision uh, this week, as having a, a broader impact in in uh, civil rights litigation uh, in other forums? Well, I, I think first of all, I would disagree with uh, with three of the statements made uh, previously. Uh, the question that was put to the president was not if he religiously believed that uh, marriage was between one man and one woman. He was asked that in the context of uh, of same-sex marriage as a matter of law. Everyone understood, and the president understood, then, of course, candidate Obama, uh, understood that that's what he was being asked. And it was in that context, in the public policy context, that he said he believed that marriage was between one man and one woman. So whether it was religiously driven or anything else uh, would, uh, would be of no moment uh, regarding the position that he has taken. Uh, with regard to federal recognition of uh, of same-sex marriage. Second, uh, regarding the idea that sexual orientation is inherently suspect, uh, that there is a slew of case law uh, that subjects uh, sexual identity uh, to rational basis review, and uh, and there is uh, and there is no. Uh, Supreme Court holding on point or or other uh, higher court holding on point, that makes it either a suspect class or even a quasi-suspect class. And so with that, you don't get the presumption of invalidity. You still have the presumptive constitutionality. And uh, so second, aside from the fact that heightened scrutiny is not applied and has not been applied, this is an innovation on the part of the administration. Again, the DOJ uh, standard for refusing to defend an act of Congress is if no reasonable argument can be made in favor of the law. And where you have in Romer v. Evans, Lawrence v. Texas, where even though it's given some teeth, it is nonetheless rational basis review that is being applied. It is the quintessential language of rational basis review in terms of rational, reasonable, and legitimate public interests. That in that context, this is this is DOJ refusing uh, to do its duty. Now, to the extent that that to, to come to your instant question, uh, to the extent that would that impact uh, broader litigation? Absolutely. I mean, you're you're looking at a situation here where the administration is refusing to defend an act of Congress, and there are various other matters where there are purported or asserted civil rights in litigation uh, where that could have a tremendous impact, absolutely, because it departs from 200 years of practice of the attorney general uh, fighting to defend the acts of Congress, because, of course, again, in our adversarial system, it is that two sides put on a vigorous defense of their side where the judge then is the arbiter as to uh, as to the final judgment, not DOJ being the final arbiter, and in essence going on then to agree with the with the opposition. Is is it fair to really say here that the that the administration is not going to defend this law anymore, or or that it's going to argue that a different standard should apply to the defense? Uh, of the it, law? It's I mean, the former. Their letter was the former that they would no longer defend, and so they invited Congress to take over the defense. That that is infected. It's not that they were going to argue briefs conceding a higher standard of view. It's not that they were going to say this is constitutional, but it is constitutional because it meets intermediate scrutiny, or it's constitutional because it meets strict scrutiny. They are instead saying we can no longer defend that this law is constitutional. Under the separation of government, uh, Tobias, is it really possible for Congress to take up a duty that really belongs to the executive branch? Well, that is a serious question, especially subsequent to Reins v. Byrd in 1997. Uh, that, that, is, that is going to be the threshold issue that will have to be addressed. 
Yeah, so I don't know quite how much into the weeds you want to get in constitutional law here, but let me respond to a couple of technical points and then uh, to the broader question. First of all, it is quite correct that the Supreme Court of the United States has never ruled one way or the other on the availability uh, or the, the, the heightened scrutiny standard for anti-gay discrimination. Romer and Lawrence were both cases in which the court found that anti-gay laws were so uh, without foundation that they did not even satisfy a rational basis review, which of course any lawyer can tell you means that we're leaving open the question of whether heightened scrutiny is appropriate because the court didn't need to reach it in those cases. Um, it is also uh, the case that various courts around the country have considered the question. A lot of the circuit court precedent that rejected heightened scrutiny in the past was decided under the dispensation of Bowers versus Hardwick, that horrific decision of the Supreme Court from 1986 in which the court said that gay people could be called felons. Uh, when the court decided Lawrence versus Texas and very powerfully extirpated from the landscape of American constitutional law that rather shameful piece of our, of our jurisprudential history, it really obviated or, or rendered no longer binding all of that old circuit precedent, which is part of what the Attorney General correctly realized in his letter. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has since found a heightened scrutiny standard to apply in the context of discrimination against a woman who was penalized for being in a relationship with another woman, uh, the Witt uh, case in the context of the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy. The California Supreme Court, the Iowa Supreme Court, and various other state courts around the country have found heightened scrutiny to be appropriate standard. So it is quite correct to say that this is an open question at the Supreme Court level. It's not correct to say that, that this is some kind of, you know, going against the trend analysis. That's the first thing that I'll say. The second is, um, you know, with all due respect, you know, I, I want to be very clear in saying that it is uh, an unusual uh uh, step for the executive to take, and it should be an unusual step for the executive to take, that uh, it concludes that a statute cannot reasonably be defended under a proper constitutional analysis. But to suggest that it is unprecedented, that it goes against 200 years of history and so forth, is, is simply incorrect. Uh, I could give you a dozen examples, and, and I don't want to be tedious about this, but the administration of George H.W. Bush uh, uh, under the leadership of uh, now Chief Justice John Roberts, who at the time was in the, the Bush Solicitor General's office, declined to defend an FCC program that had been uh, given an imprimatur by Congress that sought to diversify the airwaves and to give uh, additional opportunities for minority-owned businesses. Uh, they refused to support that before the Supreme Court. Uh, there have been any number of instances where the executive thought that its prerogatives were being intruded upon by Congress in one way or another. The one-house legislative veto, for example, that was the subject of the court's decision in INS versus Chadha. Uh, going all the way back to 1926, the court's decision in Myers, which involved a statute by, enacted by Congress that limited the president's ability to remove executive appointees. It happens quite frequently. And, uh, uh, excuse me, not quite frequently, but it has happened uh, with sufficient regularity that there's nothing unprecedented about it. And finally, once again, this is a technical point uh, on the question of quote-unquote standing. Uh, the United States has made it very clear that it is remaining a party to this lawsuit. And as the statute that I mentioned contemplates, Congress will have an opportunity to present whatever vigorous arguments it wants to in this lawsuit. But there's no question about the lawsuit somehow 
no longer being supported by proper parties, the United States is going to remain a party and with an adversarial presentation of the issues as contemplated by the participation of the congressional leadership, that's all that's required. Tobias, you know, we've seen some substantial changes in societal mores over time. I mean, it just there was a report issued by the Obama administration on women that was has been updated for the first time since Eleanor Roosevelt, who said that uh, the only women at the White House were cake decorators. Obviously, you know, society has changed over time. What role does the Constitution have in in adjusting to social mores over time and uh, or being a fixed document is it you know i understand we're kind of moving into this is questions more of a philosophical discussion but how do you see that play the, the change in social mores i mean we had changes in the 40 30s 40s and 50s leading up to the civil rights act but now with doma and the fight over same sex marriages how does that play into the the constitution as a changing document over time Protection Clause is no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And that is the constitutional text that defines the principle, both for the states and, and also, uh, as has later been held, for the federal government. And it is a text that, that demands some kind of interpretation. Uh, deny, denying citizens the equal protection of the laws, that is not a self-defining principle. Now, having said that, what we're talking about is whether approximately 12 million gay, lesbian, and bisexual Americans can be relegated to second-class citizenship. And at the end of the day, that's in fact not a new question. It is an old question. It's an old question that perhaps is being answered in a context that has not been placed before the courts until relatively recently. But that was true the first time that the courts dealt with the question of discrimination against women. It was true the first time that the courts dealt with the question of discrimination against so-called illegitimate children, children who were uh, born to an unmarried uh, couple or an unmarried mother. Um, the, the Constitution envisions that its principles would be interpreted over time as new questions are presented to the courts. And in that respect, there's nothing particularly unprecedented about this constitutional conversation that we're having now. The only question is, is there any good reason to treat 12 million of your fellow Americans as second-class citizens, as so many of our laws do right now? And my answer to that question is a decisive no. I'm going to guess that Ken wants to respond to that. Uh, Happy to. First of all, uh, just on (laughs) one quick note regarding regarding this matter being unprecedented, uh, the only times when, when... when DOJ will not defend something uh, where they think there are, is a reasonable argument, and this is the other half of the policy, it's a two-part policy, but, uh, but as your other guest said, I didn't want to get into the weeds myself, it is that they also will not defend some laws if they feel that it infringes upon presidential power, where the AG or, un, or under him, the, the SG, will not argue against the chief executive from whom they, they derive their power. Uh, and you don't find an example aside from that. You do find something where the president will proclaim this is our position and our court position will be consistent with it. But you will never find, uh, again, setting aside laws that involve a derogation of presidential power, you'll never find a case where the president says my position is that X, in this case, that that speaking of laws, that marriage is the union of one man and one woman, and yet any laws stating that are so patently irrational and unreasonable that we will not defend that in court. Uh, now, moving on to the, to the broader question, 
uh, I would I would say, and I'm, I'm I'm glad the professor brought up the issue of of women, uh, because under the rest of of what he said, the 19th Amendment would have been unnecessary. Through the Equal Protection Clause, you just could, and for that matter, if you analogize to the 15th Amendment as well, regarding race in voting rights, it should have been an issue that the court could have just declared that women have a fundamental right to vote and that laws to the contrary were unconstitutional. Instead, uh, we adopted the 19th Amendment. And we did that because the only legitimate way to interpret the Constitution, uh, the Constitution being the supreme law of the land because, precisely because it was adopted as a sovereign act of the ultimate sovereign, which is we the people in our body politic, that we adopt specific words by a, by a multi-level supermajority process. And then that the only legitimate way for life-tenured unelected, unaccountable judges to interpret and apply those words then are in the context of their original meaning, not original intent, because we're not going to get in the business of cherry-picking quotations and trying to see which framer said something that sounds like it might support what we're saying. But whether it's the Constitution or any lesser law, statutes or regulation, that courts should confine themselves uh, to discerning and discovering on an objective basis the original meaning of those words and applying that properly. And in that regard, there should be zero evolution in terms of how we, uh, in terms of how we uh, understand concepts such as due process and equal protection. Well, gentlemen, it's time for us to take a quick break. When we return, we'll have more on the Obama administration's decision not to defend the Defense of Marriage Act with University of Pennsylvania Professor Tobias Wolf and Ken Kukowski right here on Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. So I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. 
These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Want to get CLE credit for the show you just listened to? Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and look for the words Engage Your Brain. Click there and you can choose what you need for credits and listen to our shows at the same time. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams uh, and I are joined by Tobias Barrington-Wolf, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, who was also the uh, National LGBT Advisory Committee Chair for President Obama's 2008 campaign, and by Ken Glukowski, uh, Director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council. Uh, you know, we can, we can debate, I guess, the, on, a, on a perhaps a philosophical or, or political level the uh, the administration's decision to do this, but but practically speaking, uh, d- does this mean that DOMA is is dead in the water if the if the administration is not going to defend it in the federal courts? Uh, uh, what are the what are the practical implications of this, uh, Professor Wolf? Let me start with you. Well, it certainly doesn't mean that automatically. Um, the FCC program uh, that I mentioned, which was not a presidential prerogatives issue, but was an issue relating to different views about uh, race-conscious legislation, and that both involved executive action, but also congressional action, uh, that uh, the SG's office under John Roberts' leadership uh, argued was uh, could not be supported as constitutional, um, was in fact upheld by the Supreme Court. Uh, despite that position. And some years later, uh, the Supreme Court reversed itself in the Adirond case, in the case in which the administration was defending a federal program. So uh, as should come as no surprise, the courts are independent actors. And I think that the views of the administration are very important to the court, but the courts don't simply, uh, you know, parrot the arguments that are given to them by an administration. And, you know, once again, I'll return to, since you asked for a practical perspective, a very practical question, which is, there are 12 million gay and lesbian people in the United States, and they are the brothers and sisters and children and friends of uh, all of us. And the question that is being presented in this lawsuit is, are they going to be treated as second-class citizens under our law. And I don't think it should come as any great shock that this administration and that any responsible administration would come to the conclusion that the answer should be no. Uh, Ken, let me ask ask you the same question. I mean, what do you see as, as the practical implications of this uh, step by the administration? Well, first, I, I think I'll respond uh, to the last point that was made, because sure. I think uh, Tobias makes a point that is... Uh, 
uh, it is a plausible point, and it's one that deserves a response. There are people who who moved to this country. There there are Muslims uh, from other countries, and under Islamic law, a man can have up to four wives under various circumstances. And there are families that moved to this country where, nonetheless, uh, that man's marriage can only be recognized to one woman. Now, in that case, uh, you, you really have an a fortiori argument there in that you also have a, a religious impetus uh, to it. Now, I think that that would be one of the issues uh, that, that would be clearly implicated by the outcome of, uh, of this legislation. Uh, this is not a matter of saying that that Muslim man or that, his, uh, or that the, uh, the women who formed his household, this is not saying that they're second-class citizens. It is instead saying that they're, that consistent with the history and traditions of the American people, uh, there is a concept of those aspects of liberty that are inherent to an Anglo-American scheme of ordered liberty, and that if there is uh, a right to marry between one man and one woman in that context, that it is a, it is a liberty interest that does not extend outside uh, that relationship to create to create new relationships and give them the same level. And that's not in derogation of anyone's dignity as a human being. Uh, it, it does nothing to, to insult the idea that, that every human being is, uh, is, from a moral or religious perspective, made in the image of Almighty God and is due all of the dignity and honor that accompanies that status. So I, I think that all of these issues uh, come together, uh, whether it is, uh, is same-sex marriage, uh, as I just mentioned before, that polygamy, which is recognized in dozens of nations uh, the world over, many of those people which then immigrate to the United States, uh, as to whether the, the fundamental unit of American civilization is one that can be recognized in statute and whether laws to the contrary are so irredeemable that they have to be mowed down over the will uh, of the voters, as there is now uh, 29 states that have constitutional amendments that define marriage as one man and one woman, and there are 12 states beyond that uh, that do the same thing through statute. So uh, I think there are, there are tremendous implications here. So long as there are no jurisdictional threshold impediments, and I'm hopeful uh, uh, that, that, that Tobias's perspective is correct, that so long as the U.S. Main remains as a party, even though it is not asserting a vigorous defense uh, of DOMA itself, that uh, that so long as the U.S. remains a party per se, that a congressional intervention will be able to be the tip of the spear in terms of the adversarial presentation uh, so that we uh, keep a justiciable case going forward. Uh, I think the implications are, are profound. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information for our listeners. So, Tobias, let's start with you. Thank you. Um I'll say I, I'm disappointed, uh, although I guess not shocked, that my my colleague from the Family Research Council has ended by both uh, waving his hands about polygamy, which always seems to come up in these conversations, and also invoking the specter of a horde of invading Muslims who are going to take over our country if we're not careful. Um, I think that this is a very simple and straightforward conversation. It's a conversation about whether gay people and gay relationships are going to be accorded the same dignity and the same respect under our laws as straight people in straight relationships. And I think that the answer should be yes, both as a moral matter and also as a constitutional matter. And on the constitutional side, I view the actions of the attorney general and the president as an entirely appropriate recognition of that basic principle, which is indeed a principle that goes all the way back to 
the drafting of the Equal Protection Clause, which doesn't specify race or any other category. It, it specifies a principle of equality, and that's what's been given effect in the, the recent actions of the administration, and I think they're to be commended for it. And uh, Tobias, can we get your contact information, please? Um, I can be found on the Penn Law School website. Uh, my email is there. It's twolf at law.penn.edu. Wonderful. And Ken, your final thoughts on your contact information? Absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll conclude by hoping, at least in part, to, to allay the, uh, the disappointment of, of uh, a very distinguished and learned uh, colleague at the University of uh, Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, in terms of what Tobias said, it's, it's, I don't mean to be, uh, to be carrying any implicit, uh, uh, cautions regarding, regarding Islam or regarding, uh, polygamy. Uh, my point in doing so is, is to point out that one of the, the world's three major religions uh has uh, has uh polygamy as uh, as as a tenant of faith there which is uh practiced uh the the muslim faith by more than 1 billion people globally and uh and nor is that any commentary on muslim immigration into the united states that's not at all it it's a matter of saying that as we do get immigration and, and we get adherence to that mainline mainstream uh religion uh, who who engage in that practice? That to the extent that we're talking about equal protection, that is the natural next step to discuss there, because it is in fact polygamy is in fact practiced by many 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 millions of uh, of people from developed countries uh, the world over, some of which do move to this country, and that. For 200 years of American history, the idea was that marriage was the union of one man and one woman. If we are saying that is no longer uh, the definition, then if we're saying it doesn't have to be opposite genders, I think it's only natural. In fact, it's unavoidable that someone would ask why the number must be limited to two. Uh, why does it need to be the definition of two consenting adults? Why can it not be just the definition of consenting adults choosing to form uh, choosing to form a relationship. And I, uh, so I think we need to recognize that this is not an isolated issue, that if it goes in a way that's contrary to 200 years of American law and history, that then everything will become, that that will be the new normal, the new status quo, that, that the cement will dry. Uh, there are countless ways that we can then go on to, uh, uh, to, to question different aspects of the definition of what constitutes a marriage. And, uh, and that's something that we need to look at uh, with, with our eyes open to understand the, uh, the implications of this. Now, in terms of how people can uh, reach us, uh, the Family Research Council's website is www.frc.org, and uh, my, my writings and work and contact information can be found there. Great. Well, Ken and Tobias, thank you very much for being on today's program. Bob, we want to remind our listeners that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcast. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center. And let me just add my thanks to our guests for being with us today. We really appreciate your participation in the show. We will be back uh, next week with another great uh, episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. In the meantime, you can find uh, all of our past episodes at thelegaltalknetwork.com and in the podcast library of iTunes. See you then. We'll see you next week, Bob. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. 
Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.